This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this treasure of a Monday, we want to start the show like we start most of our shows with our coffee cups raised in the air. A big salute to the men and women of our armed forces on behalf of the people making podcast here in the basement and on behalf of the men and women of Navy Federal Credit Union. Thanks to our troops. Thanks, everybody. Let's go stack some Benjamins, shall we? Fine. <laughs> Hunting for a treasure chest of money talk? You're in luck because live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and grab your gear because today we're going treasure hunting. Our guide is a man bearing tales of dreamers who obsessed about the deep sea and the wealth they'd find exploring the wreck of the Titanic, Daniel Stone. For our TikTok Minute, remember that guy running for governor of New York who said the rent's too damned high? Well, guess what? What's old may be new again. And speaking of new, advisor opinions of actively managed funds may be changing. We'll share the data. Of course, we'll also dive into a question on the Haven Lifeline, and I'll help you submerge yourself in today's golden trivia question. And now, two guys who are the Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet of this podcast, <laughs> Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. Which one of you is saying, paint me like one of your French girls? <laughs> Oh, gee, is the wind beneath my wings. Hey, everybody. <laughs> welcome. Welcome to another fun Monday of the Stacky Benjamin Show. Grab that cup of coffee. Put your feet up because we are about to go on a money journey. Uh, treasure hunting today, OG. We are talking to Daniel Stone about the Titanic and um, all these people over the years that have thought, you know what? I know how to get rich. I know how to get rich. I love stories about people chasing their dream. And I love uh, people, you know, Don Quixote kind of chasing windmills. We're going to talk about that today. But first, as Doug said, we've got uh, some great headlines, TikTok minutes. So let's get started. But before all that, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. 
You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Well, don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment's the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money's breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money in the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. Now let's move. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show. Our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our headline today comes to us from Napa-Net. That's the National Association of Plan Advisors, the place where people that manage 401ks and pension funds share a lot of news. So today we're going to go a little bit insidery OG for the stackers out there. After a precipitous downturn in the market, registered investment advisors say they're leaning more toward considering active management according to new survey results. What do you think about that? Now that we've got a shaky market, this idea reemerges that, uh, you know what, having somebody watch my investments maybe a little more actively might be a good idea. What do you think? I think it's an exact response to market fluctuations and the exact wrongest thing to do, you know, like, it's well just, said. yeah, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't have said it better myself, right? <laughs> <laughs> Me fail English. That's impossible. <laughs> Win fewer words better. <laughs> Prepositional phrases are for losers. <laughs> I think it's a natural reaction. You know, the market goes down. All of a sudden, you want to look for something to do or blame, right? It's like, well, the thing that I was doing isn't working anymore, so I've got to do something different. And I was doing the set it and forget it approach, but obviously that sucks, so now I need to do this. If you recognize how the stock market works, if you recognize how your portfolio should react, and should respond to ups and downs and what the normal range of returns would look like. If you knew all that ahead of time, if you build an investment policy statement in advance, then you would know, hey, the range of returns for this type of allocation would likely be this, and this is totally normal. And then you won't be freaked out. But if you just kind of don't take those steps in advance, the problem is, is that you just kind of look for something to do. No different than, you know, all the guaranteed annuity people coming out of the woodwork right now, too. Yeah, right. Well, people are hunting for certainty, right? I mean, when the market goes down and things seem very uncertain right now, not just here, but I mean, name it, right? Geopolitically, everything seems very uncertain. Inflation, you go to the grocery store, you feel uncertainty. It feels like 
it feels like this idea that, hey, somebody's going to watch my money or somebody's going to put a floor under this really is a great sales pitch today. Yeah. And there's a difference between, I think, watching it and doing things that are smart to do, like rebalancing and tax loss harvesting. Like touching the stove over and over and over. Yeah. Versus trading or versus trying to figure out which mutual fund is going to beat the other mutual fund. So I'm going to, you know, swap them around or whatever. It's just, it's a whole bunch of busy work made to look like important activity. And it's really not that at all. Human behavior is weird. It's weird how we're always looking for the silver, but we need that quick hit path to riches, right? I mean, Daniel Stone's here. He's talking about people trying to get rich, diving for treasure. I mean, how many people went completely broke trying to find the Titanic and find the treasure and people are packing casinos because they want that, you know, that one pole on the, on the, what do they call those things? One-armed uh, bandit. One-armed bandits. Thank you. Uh, I spent a lot of time at casinos you know, lottery numbers start skyrocketing. And when the number starts getting bigger, all of a sudden it's jumping like a hundred million dollars in a day because everybody's flocking to it. Uh, it's weird how we're all looking for that and we just don't have, it's there. It's actually easy to get if we just take the slow road. Isn't that wild? Cause we, yeah, lottery tickets. I mean, we're searching for the fast lane and conversely, OG here, we're searching for the, I don't want to lose money lane. Yeah. And you're going to find that the thing that you do is going to be the thing that actually makes you lose the most money. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) We haven't heard Daniel Stone yet, but I'll bet you guys could, all three of us could bet these people he's about to tell us about trying to bring up the Titanic probably lost a ton of money. I mean, just look at some of the results of the stock market lately. It bottomed pretty much in June, toward the end of June, maybe early July recently. No guessing as to what the future may hold, but that's just what's happened in the last six, eight weeks. And uh, it's gone up since then. Not It's not rip-roaring higher, but it's higher. But the uh, sentiment investor survey you know, type stuff, when you ask investors, how are they feeling? Like, oh yeah, the bottom's still to come. The bottom's still to come. You know, that always lags, right? That that kind of fear and greed cycle lags what's actually happening. I don't have any idea what the future is going to hold, you know, as it relates to the next quarter or two or year or two or whatever. But I can tell you that with the right collection of big companies and small companies and U.S.-based ones and non-U.S.-based ones, you put them all together, you got a pretty good certainty of what the next 20 years looks like. And if that's your time horizon, and I don't know why you care what's happening right now. A piece from uh, thestreet.com dives into this. Index funds are actively managed. Which one's right for you? We'll also link to this in our show notes page. Dan Weil wrote this, says in the exchange traded fund space, more actively managed funds are entering the market. This is crazy, OG, by the way. You're talking about how active might be not a great idea. This trend toward these companies pushing out more actively managed stuff continues. Maybe that has something to do with the down market, like we're talking about. Research shows, though, over the long term, the returns of actively traded mutual and exchange traded funds rarely beat passive index funds. For 20 categories of funds tracked by Morningstar, the returns from only two of the actively managed funds matched or beat their passive counterparts in the 10 years through the end of last year. Ouch. Hmm. Doesn't seem like the right number, but Nevertheless, it's difficult to do. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 35% in any year period. So it's not easy to do. And what's more difficult 
nay, impossible, is to use... Doug just loves You just said nay, seriously, (laughs) in a sentence. With zero irony. Well, it was serious until you started laughing at me. Oh, now I see your suit of armor. I get it now. Okay. (laughs) Heretofore and therewith. Thereunto pertaining. I didn't realize we were in merry old England. (laughs) This is why I can't hang out with you guys, because I'm trying to have a serious conversation, and you're... Don't say like that. God dang negativity. I'm an idea man. Anyways, the hard part with all of that, nay, impossible, <laughs> is to either A, predict that outperformance in advance, or to try to figure out whether or not that person is going to be consistently outperforming. And neither of those things are able to happen. You can't use past performance or anything like that. So, you know, people say, well, you can't beat the market. No, that's not true. I mean, whatever number you just said, 20% of people did. People do it all the time. If if the stock market was down one yesterday and you were even money, you beat the market. Congratulations. You're an active manager who beat the market. You're a unicorn. But can you use that information to make investment decisions in the future? And I would say no. Can you use it to predict outperformance in advance? No, you can't. And so you have to have different areas for opportunities for expected return or higher expected return. And you can do those things through asset allocation, which is what we do, is rather than just think about it from a pure indexing standpoint, I'm just going to take whatever the index gives me. Well, you can juice it a little bit by saying, well, small companies do better than big. So maybe I have a little bit, a little flavor of small companies in there. And that's going to, from an asset allocation standpoint, help my overall expected return. And that, OG, right there, what you just said, that is exactly how we get both the floor and the ceiling, right? Diversification gives us some semblance of a floor. What's the chance that all these companies are going to go down at the same time? And then if you're obsessed with having a part of your portfolio beat the S&P 500, well, you know how you do that? The next paragraph in this piece says, a total of 54.4% of actively managed diversified emerging market funds outperformed passive during the period and 50% of global real estate funds outperformed. I don't want to get into active versus passive with emerging market or to global real estate, but just having these different asset classes in your portfolio is going to give you both the floor and a part of your portfolio that will do better because emerging markets over that time, you know, um, some of these markets did very well. Well, I want to kind of mention one thing that you just said there. It, and you said, if you want part of your portfolio to outperform the S&P, I don't know why you would even care what the S&P does. If you're working from an investment plan or you're working from a retirement plan, you should know what you need to do to reach your goals. And who gives a crap what the S&P does or doesn't do? If the S&P does 10 and you do 11, but you needed 12, guess what? You're still broke. <laughs> You get to be like, woohoo, I beat the S&P and I'm broke. Good for me, I guess. You know, I mean, it's a good barometer to kind of say, am I in the ballpark, right? The S&P is up 10 and you're minus 20. Okay, something's amiss, right? But if the S&P is up 10, you're up nine or the S&P is up 10, you're up 12 or, you know, whatever. That doesn't matter so much as it matters whether or not over a long period of time, you're reaching the number that you need to reach your goals. I just wish that people would stop comparing themselves to inanimate objects or other people's, you know, investment accounts. I, you know, you see all these people that talk about like, here's all the stuff that I have, or here's how I do it. And it's like, well, okay, good, good. I'm glad that that worked for you. That might not work for me. 
by the way, your goals aren't my goal. I'm not planning on retiring at 35. So I have a different, I have a different trajectory. So why can't I make a, an investment plan that's specific for me and then manage my behavior to my plan so I can reach my goals so that my family, you know, is successful. If some of these terms that we used uh, talking about asset allocation or proper diversification, we also mentioned, oh, we mentioned something else. Nay. Want to define nay? Nary. Nary. We did. We mentioned nay and nay and nary. If you'd like to know old English or more about these financial <laughs> terms we used, we have a newsletter called the 201. We might go over one of those two concepts. We might skip the old English stuff, but maybe, I don't know, if Brooke Miller's feeling good, she might- uh, Brooke should write an entire newsletter in Shakespearean <laughs> English, I think. <laughs> I think, I guess it'll be the best 201 ever. Stackybenjamins.com slash 201 for a deeper dive. The show today is the 101. If you want to dive in more into any of these topics, I know what I was going to say, Doug, even though nay was a good one, was investment policy statement. There's a lot there too mm. that you can really yeah. dig into about how to create those. We'll have all that in our newsletter like we usually do so you can nerd out on these topics. But for now, time for our TikTok minute. This is the minute of the show where we dive into a TikTok creator's creation and ask, is this... uh is this awesome or quote awesome today before we get there let's kind of set this this one up remember that do remember that uh, new york governor's race several years ago andrew when andrew como won they had like seven people on the stage well let's listen to a news report uh the night after which will kind of set up this video and um really talks about uh, one guy a guy named jimmy mcmillan moments in the theater park came from the third party candidates that included a former madam who wants to legalize prostitution, a former Black Panther and city councilman, and a candidate whose party is named Rent is Too Damned High. He made a point of making that uh, comment a number of times. Here are some of the best one-liners from last night. Rent is too damn high. In fact, businesses will leave this state quicker than Carl Palladino at a gay bar. <laughs> Asking Andrew Cuomo and Carl Palladino to end corruption is like asking an arsonist to help us put out the fires. Yeah, it's <laughs> just some, uh, I don't know if you guys remember that debate. I remember wa- going back and watching that entire debate and it was just a circus. Absolutely bizarre. Those are great one-liners. Like I'll try to find a way to use those, but I bet you in hindsight right now, people are thinking maybe we shouldn't have gone with Cuomo. Maybe the rent is too damn high, dude. Might have been a good option. I know all of these didn't age well, Cuomo. (laughs) All these, all these landlords now clawing back all these months where they couldn't collect rent. Right, your reports from all over the nation about landlords uh, jacking up the rent. And man, if you're if you're somebody now who is renting, it might be a very difficult place to be. Which leads to something, Doug, I think you should start doing. You should start walking around when you go out to dinner. Like use phrases that are that are fun like that. Like this this steak okay. is too damn good. I'm even gonna yes. probably tell your mom the meatloaf's too damn delicious. There See you go. See if that works. Maybe. I I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> might might work uh here's something that doesn't work it's high rent and uh well here's one renter that is uh, striking back 
raising your rent next year, then I guess I'm moving. Nothing like the annual game of chicken with my landlord. I love that lease renewals have become ransom notes for your home. This place doesn't appreciate in value, you know. It's not a share of Amazon stock. It's a one-bedroom apartment with an ant problem. I gotta cover the cost of maintenance. What maintenance? You talking about a cough gun and a few new light bulbs? Use the thousands of dollars I continue to give you. He's, uh, he's slightly angry, OG, about his rent going up. And on one hand, it makes a good point. Like, you know, the landlord's got to cover his mortgage in most cases, but they also got to make the place livable. He's like, I'm giving you thousands of dollars. The place still has an ant problem and you're going to jack my, going to jack my rent up. But there's, is there a limit? Do you think like, so I just saw a real, don't know where the originating platform was, but I just saw a reel that uh, some young woman's rent was going up $2,200. What did it start at? I think her, her existing four dollars. Like, it, it started at four dollars. No, I I can't remember if she even said if there were, you know what the percentage increase was, but it wasn't like it was ten thousand in rent that was going to twelve two. I think it uh-huh. was probably like three grand that was going to fifty two hundred. I mean that's a significant increase. I'm hearing these stories from all over the place. Almost doesn't matter where you live. People in different cities around the nation uh, reporting that their rents getting jacked up. So what say you, OG? Yeah, I think uh, I think it's a tough situation if you're a renter and rent's going up a whole bunch and it's happening all around you and it's happening in different parts of the country. You have to make a decision, I think. You have to say, I'm going to pack my stuff and move, you know, and go to a different place that maybe has a little bit lower cost of living. I can try to increase my income. We talk a lot about making sure that you're getting paid what you're supposed to be paid. So maybe you have to ask for a pay raise. Maybe you should be uh, kind of working on the top line of your of your expenses in addition to the uh, in, in addition to the bottom line or top line of your income statement. But if it's happening all over, it's hard to it's hard to pin that on one particular landlord because the way the market forces would work, I would think if it's a big enough area, if one person jacked the rates up by twenty two hundred bucks and that's a fifty percent increase, they're just going to lose all their tenants. If everyone else is charging three grand and this dude's right. charging five, it's either worth five or he's just seeing what he can get. And if it doesn't work, then then equilibrium will pull it back down to three and mm-hmm. and then he'll be kind of cast with that scarlet letter of like, that's the jerk <laughs> landlord. Yeah, right. Don't go to that building. I do like at the beginning of this, and obviously there's a lot of indignation all over social media like this piece, but I do like really? the beginning of that. I don't, I don't see it. Oh, I've seen it. Doug just mentioned a reel that he saw. I keep seeing reels. I keep seeing news reports. I keep seeing indignation. All kinds generally, of- general unhappiness on social media. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> he got both of us. He got both of us with that one. I just, oh, you know. Wow. No, no, wow. no, no. It's there. You got to really pay attention. <laughs> okay. I mean, I guess, I guess I'll get on more. Yeah. Unlock my Facebook account and check it out. I, I mean, that last time I was there, it seemed pretty He got salty, me but all okay. the way in on that one. Wow. Nice work. But I did like the beginning, the beginning of that, which is, okay, I'm moving. I mean, you know what? If, if you're a renter, go out, but I mean, play every card that you have, either, either pay it, negotiate, right? We've had uh, people on here talking about negotiating your rent. A lot of times people don't even try to do that. So hey. talk to your landlord. So, uh, man, leverage, if you're a renter, feels like you don't have a lot right now. Well, in every, just... in every community, every city, 
Metroplex, subdivision, you know, whatever, they're going to have a tenant's rights guide produced by the city, co-signed by legal counsel that will kind of go through your rights as a tenant in in that area. And every state or municipality is going to be a little different. But for example, things like when should you get your you know security deposit back? What's what's allowable uses of the security deposit money? Can they say, hey, we had to clean the place when you leave. Therefore, we're going to hold on to it. It's like, well, no, normal wear and tear, normal cleaning is not included in security deposits. And, and then there's usually places for arbitration that the city or municipality will have set up to kind of help. If your landlord is just tenants. being a dick. Yeah, kind of help everybody yes. kind of put this all together. Well, the, the animosity that a landlord has right now. And the animosity that we're seeing now, which uh, feels uh, a little heated. <laughs> Whether it's social media or not, it still feels right. a little heated. Can't wait for this guest. Daniel Stone is a writer on science, history, and adventure. He's a former senior editor for this little operation called National Geographic. Not sure if you guys have heard of that. He was a former White House correspondent for another tiny publication called Newsweek. His first book, The Food Explorer, was a national bestseller, selected as American Horticulture Society's Book of the Year. By the way, that book, currently in development for a TV series. But even bigger than that, he's got a new book called Sinkable, where he's talking about this quest for riches, these people with big dreams and sometimes very little money going after destiny. Can't wait to talk to him. We, by the way, have our friend Doc G, who's going to help us with this interview. I love the way Doc G interviews people. He, of course, from the Earn and Invest podcast. If you haven't listened to Doc G and Earn and Invest after you get done listening to us, go over there. Great show. And uh, we, I'm sure, have a great discussion with Doc G and Daniel. Uh, but first, to get us there, Doug, I think you've got uh, some exploring theme trivia, huh? Absolutely, I do. You know, with Daniel Stone getting ready to join us today, it gets me ready for some treasure hunting. Nothing more fun on a hot day than strapping on a heavy metal detector and walking slowly down a beach staring at the sand. Sure, you miss a sunset or two, or you know, maybe whales going by, or even little Timmy bobbing up and down in the water hoping you'll save him from drowning. But you know, it's worth it because you'll probably come home with at least you know, like 45 or 85 cents every hour you're out there. If you talk about ROI, it's gold. Speaking of gold, since we're talking treasure hunting, here's a question Where did gold come from? I mean, like originally. I'll be back with the answer right after I take my metal detector off the charger so we can become independently wealthy. Well, if you're new to Stacking Benjamins, you may not know that I've tried out a lot of personal finance apps. I like to be a guinea pig and try out all these things so I know what I'm talking about when it comes to uh, what's helpful and what isn't helpful. And the app that I've used the longest has been Monarch Money. And it's because Cheryl and I, my spouse, were able to collaborate together. We can work on our goals together and our budget and our goals are right next to each other on the app. It is clearly the next generation of personal finance apps. So what is it? Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now... Because you're a stacker, you'll get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. I love the fact that we get to collaborate. I love the fact that it's customizable. And I also love that it's this ad-free privacy you can trust. They never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch myself, I totally get 
why it's the top rated personal finance app. And right now, because you're a stacker, you're going to get an extended 30 day free trial to try it out. Like I try out many different apps. And this one was sticky for me because, well, you'll see when you try out the 30 day free trial, go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's M O N A R C H M O N E Y.com slash Benjamins for your extended 30 day free trial. Becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union lets you experience more from everyday commutes to your next big vacation. The flagship credit card earns you three times the points on travel so you can get rewarded for wherever you're headed next. Clearly, the best way, stackers, to reward yourself is to pay your cards off in full. And once you do that, then the reward points start adding up. Don't worry about rewards until you pay your card off every month. But listen, as a carrot to do that, not only do you get three times the points on travel, this premium travel card is a low annual fee of $49 and two times the points on all purchases outside of travel, meaning the rewards don't have to end even when the vacation does. Speaking of rewards, you can get a Navy Federal Auto Loan that will help you make sure that you can get that car that gets you back and forth to work. And if you're in the car market right now, you know how frustrating that can be. Applying through Navy Federal is super easy. You can do it on their mobile app, online, or by phone. And it's so fast, you'll get a decision in seconds. Navy Federal has great rates on auto loans. Plus, with their car buying service, something we need more now than ever, powered by TrueCar, you can shop, compare, and get upfront pricing on your next new or used car. Navy Federal, our members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, open to the armed forces, the DOD, veterans and their families. Flagship rates are variable and range between 10.74% and 18% APR based on creditworthiness. ATM fees for cash advances are up to $1 at non-Navy Federal ATMs. Credit and collateral subject to approval. Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information and to apply. Hey there, stackers. I'm famous basement-based explorer and purveyor of riches to come, Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. When I heard we were going to talk about a sinking ship today, I thought we were referring to OG's sense of humor. No? No? Okay, all right. Uh, I, I thought we were referring to Joe's investment in crypto. Still... Still, still no? Okay. Uh, now, I think we're talking about this trivia segment. There we go. Let's get to it. Where does gold come from originally? Well, when two pieces of gold really love each other. No, it's not that. While alchemists tried to, during the Middle Ages, tried to create gold from lead, real gold actually came from supernovas colliding and collapsing, and then pieces of them hitting the Earth's hot core way back when the earth was still forming and Joe was in middle school. Most of the gold on earth is still found in its core, which means all we gotta do is have a good shovel that we can dig down to the center of the earth with. It's easy, we're all gonna be rich. Grab a shovel, people, who's with me? We'll get started right after we say hello to a gentleman telling us a story about the chase for riches, fame, and the history books all by bringing up the Titanic from the ocean floor, Daniel Stone. Daniel Stone, author of Sinkable Obsession, the Deep Sea, and the Shipwreck of the Titanic. Welcome to the basement. We are so happy to have you here today. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. I really love this book, and I want to start with the title, 
why write of all things a book about shipwrecks? Was there some obsession on your side a little bit? I have been fascinated by shipwrecks for a long time, my whole life. I mean, I I did a science project on floating and sinking when I was in first grade. And since then, I've wondered how these ships that keep getting bigger and bigger work, how they float, how they operate, and also what happens at the end of their working life. And every ship has a working life that eventually ends. And almost every ship becomes a shipwreck at the end. It's an interesting concept. And I don't think most of the audience can get their mind around how many shipwrecks there actually are. You start the book in the author's note by asking a question, how many shipwrecks sit at the bottom of the ocean as relics of accidents past? Tell me what type of answers you get when you ask people this and what the reality is. Well, I've asked this question to many people, does it, maybe 100 people over the past couple of years. And everyone kind of thinks the same way. They say, well, you know, I've I've heard of the Titanic. I've heard of the Endurance, right? Ernest Shackleton's ship. I've heard of Vasco da Gama and his ships. And they think of the big historical kind of nuclei, the big ships of history. But what they don't think of are the millions of small ships and everything from a leisure pontoon that you and I would rent on a Sunday afternoon up to today's cruise ships that, you know, 10, 20, 30 years from now will also be obsolete and probably become shipwrecks themselves. And altogether, no one ever gets close to the actual number, which according to UNESCO is 3 million shipwrecks exist on Earth. There are shipwrecks in every body of water, of course, in every stretch of ocean. There are parts of the ocean where there are shipwrecks on top of other shipwrecks. Mm -hmm. There are wrecks in lakes and rivers everywhere. There are even wrecks in places you would never consider. There are wrecks under cornfields in Kansas. There are wrecks in the deserts of Namibia. Um, And after the Twin Towers fell in New York on 9-11, the excavators actually found uh, a centuries-old shipwreck under the debris of Ground Zero in New York City that the towers were built on under that spot of ground. So there are shipwrecks even where you'd least expect them. That's almost too hard to contemplate, 3 million. This is a money show, so let's put that in money terms. How much do you think is out there in sunken wealth and treasure on these ships if we're talking about a number as big as 3 million that are still out there? Great question. You know, shipwrecks are a a world full of conspiracies, of mysteries, of wild speculation and gross exaggeration. So no one really knows a lot of ships used to carry a lot more valuable goods than they did today, right? Before cars, trains, planes. If you wanted to get thousands of pounds of silver or gold from one country to another, it went on a ship. And a lot of times the ship didn't make it. So there are archaeologists who expect the number, I believe, is somewhere around 60 to $80 billion worth of valuable material. Everything from gold to silver things like indigo dye, things like teak wood that, you know, centuries ago was really, really valuable stuff that's still sitting, waiting to be discovered. So do you think the draw is the possible treasure? Because I see that side of it. On the other hand, you yourself say you became obsessed as a little kid. Obviously, you weren't you weren't thinking about money at that time, or maybe you were thinking about sunken treasure. But what do you think the draw is? Why do so many people become obsessed with this? It's the thrill of the hunt. It's the chase. It's knowing something is out there waiting to be found. 
I mean, none of us would turn down finding a great haul of buried treasure, right? And, and the money, but but to do something that no one's been able to ever do and and turn up a, an old wreck, you know, there are excavators now that can go down deeper than three miles underwater, which is very modern. Like that's within the past 10 years. Before that, no one could really go that far down. And there are stretches of ocean that have wrecks filled with gold or silver or any valuable stuff that are that far down. and you know, you get enough people with enough money and uh, are bored enough and they'll get a <laughs> ship and get the sonar equipment and go do it. And if you do it right, it could pay for itself and a lot more. If you do it right, how many people end up doing it right? I'm thinking of the thousands and thousands of people who are interested and put the money together and do some of this treasure hunting. How many of them come up with something? Very few, less than 1%. I mean, doing it right really means doing it with great advantages. And the advantages are having enough money to, you know, charter a really nice boat, which could cost anywhere from ten dollars to $100,000 a day. It means having the equipment that gets towed underwater to, you know, survey the ocean floor, which is full of rocks and debris and all sorts of other junk. So to find a shipwreck is not as easy as kind of dropping a magnet into the ocean and seeing where it goes. You know, the guy who found the Titanic, Bob Ballard, in 1985, we learned recently, within the past few years, he only found the Titanic because he had the advantage of military-produced sonar and survey equipment, and he was on a classified mission looking for other shipwrecks. And so the idea that anyone could just kind of get a boat and go do it, it's, it's very remote. It's very difficult to do. And the people who do it generally have these big equations of great funders and a lot of investment and, you know, the best equipment and a lot of time because it often takes a lot more than you'd think. I want to, in a moment, talk about the big personalities, not Ballard, who is well-funded, but a guy named Doug Woolley, who was not well-funded for most of his journey. But before we do... Why is the Titanic the mother of all shipwrecks? Why is that so interesting to all of us? I, I pondered this question for years, frankly. And, you know, we all grew up learning about the Titanic. We all went to see the movie in the <laughs> 90s, right? Many of us, many times in the theaters and then after trying to see this, you know, can't get enough of this shipwreck. And there are many theories, and they're all, they're all correct, right? This is, you know, it's a great metaphor of hubris. It's a great failure of corporate growth. It's rich people died. It's, it's a big narrative story of loss on a great scale. But I narrowed down on one theory that I think explains everything and really separates the Titanic from every other shipwreck. And just keep in mind, the Titanic is not really a unique wreck in the, the history of wrecks. Right, Many ships had been built big, many ships had carried rich people, many ships had hit icebergs and sank before. Icebergs were a huge problem in the 1890s, in the decade before the Titanic. But what made the Titanic was different was that not only did 1,500 people die, which was a lot of death, but importantly, about 700 people lived, right? And a lot of those people who lived were women and children who were young, who ended up living another 50, 70, sometimes 80 years, telling and retelling the story of that night. And the storytelling of keeping these details alive through the memories of 700 people is really what has kept the Titanic in the cultural kind of swirl for the past century. 
most shipwrecks don't have that equation of you know great depth and also great survival to give life to a great story. So let's talk about some of the people who are enamored, or maybe I should say entrapped by these wonderful stories. Sinkable plots the course of the eventual detective work that found the Titanic. You had mentioned Ballard and really the dreams of excavating it. Talk about the personality traits of the characters that played a central role in this audacious goal. Yeah. So there are a couple main characters in the book. The first one, you know, briefly is a guy named Charles Smith, who was a mining engineer expert in 1914. And he was the first guy who said, not only can we go find the ship that just sank two years prior, but we can salvage it. We can raise it up. And he had this grand plan that he announced in newspapers across the country to find the ship and bring it up. And of course, now we know that's kind of outlandish. It, it's never possible. But in his day, people really believed it. People sent him money and, and he had this great plan. And just kind of giving life to the sense that the Titanic is not gone. It could be brought back kind of gave it life through the 1920s and into the 30s um, and really carried it through until the 1950s when the first big movie came out called A Night to Remember, based on the book by Walter Lord. And that alone kind of revived this wreck, maybe 40 years after it sank, in a way that gave a new generation kind of the mana to obsess. And that, of course, led us to our, our main character of the book, a guy named Doug Woolley, who took this as his life's obsession and has not let go of it since. Let's talk about Doug Woolley. You know, in the story, we realize that there were a lot of ups and downs, but he was never even close to successful. Do you see the Doug Woolley story as a tragic story or a triumphant story? Oh, man, what a great question. So you kind of have to know a little more about Doug Woolley. I mean, Doug Woolley was a boy in England who really had not anything going for him when, when he was a kid. He was kind of a, a loner. He didn't have friends. You know, he was the youngest sibling. No one really cared about him. He got forgotten a lot. And he develops this obsession with the Titanic as a young boy through the story that he had two ants that were supposed to be on the ship that had a premonition and avoided getting on, right? So that gives birth to this great obsession as a boy. And all through his life, you know, he had many different jobs. He he moved different places, but he stayed consistent in his obsession with the Titanic. And very similar to Charles Smith, who I just mentioned a moment ago, the mining engineer, Doug Woolley also had this grand master plan of how to raise the ship up. He wanted to go find it, raise it, salvage it, and restore it, put it in a museum. And also outlandish, right? But he also had incredible success, right? Like he he raised a ton of money. He got a lot of people to, to pay attention to him. He got written up in newspapers all over the world in the 60s and the 70s and early 80s. And looking back, I mean, of course we know he failed, right? Like he didn't do it. It's still underwater. But for most of writing this book, I thought Doug Woolley was dead. I, I couldn't find any record of him. And then toward the end, I found him. He's, he's still alive and he lives in England. Uh, he's about 86 years old. And I went to visit him and I, I confronted him with that question saying, you know, you, you said you'd do this thing and you never did it. And how do you confront that sense of very public failure? And his answer was basically, I didn't succeed yet. <laughs> I, still, I still plan to do it. 
And if it takes me to my last day, this is my life's goal. And it's really his North Star that's carried him his entire life. So to your question, Jordan, I mean, you're right. He's a failure. You could look at him and say he failed. But also, he kind of created his own goal. He created his own life's path, and he stayed consistent to it his whole life. How many of us can say that and, and really believe it? And so in that way, he's, he's a success. He, he's, he's, he's built a life and built a real passion and career for himself. This was a guy who was trying to raise, at some point, millions of dollars to do his work on the Titanic. How was he living on his on his own? How was he living himself? Uh, was he living it up with this money he was raising? No. In fact, the money never really showed up. I mean, some money came, you know, a couple thousand dollars here and a couple thousand there. But mostly he was a fairly lower class, middle class guy. He worked in a number of jobs. He worked in a, a hosiery factory making pantyhose. He worked for a railroad, you know, on, in, working in a signal box, changing the tracks. Um, at one point, he worked for a church. He was the clock changer. So very, you know, inventive, eclectic guy. But he was never living it up. Um, he saw the Titanic as his ticket to great wealth and fame. And he was willing to pursue it for decades. And and in many ways, you know, even at age 86, he still is. And, you know, all through this time, he never really had the scientific or know-how credentials to do any of this. Is that right? I mean, a lot of this he was doing by the seat of his pants. Yeah, he never had any experience in engineering, in you know, maritime archaeology, nothing underwater. I could barely barely find record of him ever being on a boat, let alone you know, kind of knowing how to go salvage an old boat. But this is like an in- interesting theme from the book, and what I realized was that. You know, we have a lot of people in our culture now who make big ideas and kind of promise, overpromise things, and sometimes deliver, but a lot of times not. And I think a difference between someone like Doug Woolley and today, like Elon Musk, who's considered this great visionary who changes the world, is, you know, the times which they lived and the money that they have, right? Doug Woolley was also a visionary. He was outlandish. He said crazy things. People didn't believe him. People dismissed him. And he didn't really have the money to kind of prove them wrong. Someone like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk, you know, they have a stroke of luck, usually early in their life, that helps propel their outlandish ideas into the future. Doug Woolley could have been on that track, but he just lacked that kind of early propulsion. It's really interesting to try to parse out what makes the difference between a Doug Woolley and an Elon Musk or a Doug Woolley and a Bill Gates, because I assume that when they first started with their ideas, people looked at them with the same incomprehension, thinking that they were a little bit loony. Absolutely. And now they're all visionaries. They're brilliant. (laughs) They're geniuses, right? And, you know, I think a lot of it is a stroke of luck early in their life. Some of it is money. Some of it is who they know. Doug Woolley just didn't have that. But the difference between a laughably outlandish person and a brilliant visionary is very, a very thin line and sometimes doesn't really exist at all. By doing this book, you obviously did a deep dive into the research and the shipwrecks. What are some things that you learned that really surprised you that you didn't expect to find? Mainly how ships die. That was an area that fascinated me. A lot of ships become wrecks because it's just cheaper than pulling them apart or doing something else with them. Uh, Even giant cruise ships become wrecks, often in waters that are really deep that they'll never be found. 
I also found that there was a movement, and this is fascinating, in the 80s and the 90s in Florida, of all places, to create more wrecks because they thought that coral would grow, you know, abundantly if we could sink more stuff. And so for about 10 years in Florida, people sunk anything they could, you know, Mm. old cars, old toilets, and more than 50,000 tires that they thought would just sink to the bottom and give birth to coral, which of course, you know, they later found tires are not heavy enough. So they roll along the ocean floor, they kill the existing coral. It was like a terrible idea that they're still cleaning up. I found existing stories of people who try to save shipwrecks, that they go down and they try to stop the corrosion by attaching blocks of metal or or trying to reduce the amount of salt water or the sunlight that gets onto wrecks that that erodes them further. Really obsessive people that are doing this almost quixotic work of trying to stop the ocean from doing what it's doing. And then the last thing was kind of the world of ship breakers, right? And this mostly happens in developing countries, but when big ships die, they generally go to a shipyard where they get pulled apart piece by piece in a very, very dangerous industry by usually, you know, very poor people um, that risk their lives to do this work. This is part of shipping. It's part of global transport of goods. And it's an inherent part of the cruise industry that we never get to see. And it's fascinating. And as far as the commercialization of shipwrecks go, pieces of the Titanic for sale, uh, is that something that's still out there on the market? Would you buy one yourself if you could find one? I have not. uh, There are different grades of things you could buy about the Titanic. There is no shortage of Titanic material. In fact, I found on any given day, there are over a thousand auctions on eBay at any given moment for Titanic-related artifacts. Some recreations, some purporting to be real, very hard to authenticate them. Uh, One thing that started to pop up in the past 20 years are what are called rusticles, pieces of rust from the ship that have been surfaced uh, that then get put in these plastic commemorative containers and get Mm. sold for a couple hundred dollars. There's also coal, coal that was in the boilers or designed, you know, to be in the boilers of the Titanic sitting on the ocean floor. You can buy a tiny piece of coal that was in the Titanic also for a couple hundred dollars. Whether you could get a mug or a plate or a pair of boots, those are really, really hard to find. And most of them have been bought up by collections companies that feed museum exhibits that travel all over the world. The biggest one is actually in Atlanta. It's called Experiential Media Group, and it is the owner of the most Titanic artifacts in the world. Well, the book is Sinkable Obsession, the Deep Sea and the Shipwreck of the Titanic. Daniel, tell us if we are interested in buying this book, when is it available and where's the best place for us to purchase it? Sure. It goes on sale August 16th. Anywhere books are sold, particularly your local bookstore, online, anywhere you can, it should be available. And I appreciate it. Daniel Stone, thank you for coming down to Mom's Basement. Thank you for having me, Jordan. Great interview there, Doc G. Thanks for doing it. Thank you for having me host. Uh, It was a wonderful book. Uh, There was one thing I really want to shine a light on about this interview that I found most remarkable, which is when you're talking about some of these failures And especially when he went and visited the guy he thought had passed away that he didn't know of anymore. And the guy did not define himself as a failure where Daniel had, I thought that was incredibly 
empowering and interesting. And I'm still trying to sort out why, like I just heard it. So I'm trying to figure out why that really fires me up, but it does that this guy's like, you know, Colin O'Brady the other day said, you just attach the word yet to anything and it makes it aspirational. Yeah, you know, it's this idea of the journey versus the destination. Doug Woolley never reached that ultimate journey. He never was able to pull the Titanic out. On the other hand, it gave him a sense of meaning and purpose. And it was a good use almost of his time and money because it entertained him and it made him feel important. Well, think about all the things. Think about all the things that he learns, Doc. All the things he learns about the ocean, about engineering, about you know what I mean? The incredible study he had to do his entire life. This guy was probably an expert on everything from oceanography to, to you know, aquatic life to how steel rusts, right? I mean, just everything. And he became famous in his own right. So he was well known. There are lots of articles written about him. He became the subject of this book. It was all based on his audacity. It's very interesting. What did you think when he turned the spotlight on some of today's entrepreneurs? You know, I love this idea that we can look today and see Silicon Valley and think that there is a lot of boldness and brashness and we're creating more than we ever had. We're creating more wealth and we're creating more interesting things. It's interesting to see that this was really rooted, I think, in the past This search for sunken treasure, the bringing up these ships that have fallen, it really is the precursor of what we see today in the business world and especially in the high tech world. And so I think it's really nice to see that's a natural continuum or, you know, evolution of what we saw in the past. Thanks for doing it again. That was that was great. It was a blast. This is Daryl from Pennsylvania. When I'm not busy arguing with a four-year-old, I'm stacking Benjamins. No, Daddy. Big thanks to Doc G and to Daniel Stone for that. You, you know, Doug, on your gold trivia, now when you see somebody with a gold watch, you can say, that watch is out of this world. And it truly is. Yeah. And they'll be like, what? Say, like, get away from <laughs> me, freak. <laughs> the hell you doing? You can't have my watch. And let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, Doug, they put what you value first. I'll tell you what I'm valuing right now is a deer fly repellent that actually works. These things are, they are the scourge of the earth. You can't have uh, just 130% DEET. Have you tried that? No, it literally, nothing works on these things. I've done so much research. DEET may have some minor impact, but I've tried it's not doing a thing. These things are just brutal. That's crazy. Well, that's why they made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. So you can dive even deeper into the homework there and not into your life insurance application that, man, I remember these things taking years and years and years to fill out. Well, that's a little far, but definitely far too long. And answers to questions, the, the insurance company already knows and they don't need the answer to. Nope. Instead, It's a very quick application. It's all online. You get an instant coverage decision, affordable prices. And even though they're a fintech company and streamline everything, they're backed by MassMutual. So you know that you're dealing with a company that's been there more than 160 years old. Today, we're going to throw out the lifeline to Sherry. Say hello, Sherry. Hi, guys. This is Sherry. I have a question about drawing Social Security. Uh, My husband passed away a few years ago at 55. He was 
had retirement but not drawing Social Security. And I understand that at 62, I could start drawing my Social Security and then switch to his, which would be more at 66 or 67 and receive his full benefits. I'm just wondering if that was true. Thanks. Hey, thanks for the question, Sherry. And uh, so, so sad to hear about your husband. OG, when it comes to Social Security and possibly drawing his Social Security, can you give her some insight on not just uh, how this works, but maybe some resources? Yeah, you've got it pretty much nailed. There's survivor benefits that are eligible as early as 60 if you're taking care of children. Uh, You can claim them a lot earlier than that even. And you can claim your survivor or, you know, survivor benefits, then your benefit, then back to survivor benefits, kind of the timing of that. Sadly, the Social Security website is not going to be able to figure all that out. Uh, You can go on ssa.gov and it will kind of give you an idea of what it should look like. But this is one of the circumstances where you definitely need to get to the Social Security office. Um, It's hard to get an appointment these days because, you know, a lot of those folks are still virtual completely and and you almost have to be knee to knee with somebody to kind of walk through this. And there's a lot of uh, Social Security specific resources and Social Security specific programs that are online that can kind of give you the the exact verbiage that you want to use. I know the folks at Investment News, Mary Beth Franklin, has a really big Social Security program and answers a lot of questions about Social Security benefits on on that page as well. So tough news. Sorry to hear about your your husband, but you're thinking about it pretty much exactly right. So the timing is the thing that matters. And when you have to switch it, it's going to be tough to do that online. So you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to be in an office to be able to, to sit down with somebody and do that. We also did a story that Mary Beth Franklin talked about uh, a few weeks ago, OG, that Sherry uh, is going to need to know, which is that sometimes even sadly, the people at the Social Security office don't have the right information. And so verifying the information after your appointment, which is frustrating, I think is something else that's also pretty important, is a very important thing yeah. to do. Before you turn anything on or sign anything or you know, you want to get a second and probably third opinion to make sure you're doing it right. For a uh, dive into Social Security basics, uh, we had a an interview with uh, Lawrence Kutlikoff and Philip Mollier about a book that they uh, wrote on the topic called Get What's Yours. It's been uh, still one of the most widely read books in this area. We'll link to not only our interview, but also to that book in our show notes at stackingbedjamins.com for maybe not as deep as Sherry needs to go, but at least gives people the the groundwork of what they need to know when it comes to Social Security Hey, that's going to do it for today, everybody. Thank you so much for uh, hanging out with us. And by the way, if you're somebody that has a question for OG and for the team here in mom's basement, uh, head to stackingbedjamins.com slash voicemail. And Sherry is getting the Haven Lifeline shirt. I actually have the Haven Lifeline mug today, uh, the greatest money show on earth mug, which is just an awesome design that Brad Lark made for us uh, in Cincinnati. Uh, fantastic designer. Thanks to everybody who left us a review. Mom is always putting the five-star reviews that people are leaving us on the fridge. Thank you uh, so much for that. By the way, I also need to very publicly thank 
all the people, including you two yahoos affiliated with this basement based podcast. Uh, there's a lot of people who make this show happen. And I'm so, was so thrilled to hear that we were nominated for not one, not two, but three Plutus Awards this year. And there are awards that we are not eligible for because- I was going to say, aren't we banned from all future Plutus Awards? We are banned from best podcast because we've won it uh, too much. And so we, we were can, like the Yankees and the people were sick of seeing, we cannot win it. And there's a lot of other good podcasts too that, and, and I love what the Plutus awards do. They try to show people new things that they haven't seen before, but we've still been nominated in other categories. Most entertaining publication about personal finance, the Stacky Benjamin show up against some other very entertaining outlets and then uh, best coverage of personal finance events. We've been nominated for our headline segment in that category. And a lot of people, as um, Doug, you talk about in our credits that get a lot of credit for that. Uh, Brooke Miller helps us put those together. Paulette Perhatch doing a lot of the writing. Uh, Tina Eichenberg, fantastic. And then, of course, our team of contributors that make it entertaining. Uh, I don't know where we'd be without our friends Paula Pant and Len Penzo as well, who who do a lot of uh, great stuff with us. I think you only mentioned two of the awards, headlines and... Oh, that's uh, right. Yes, yes. The third well, one's the best announcer person, right? <laughs> the third one is best new personal finance book. So big thanks to Emily Guy Birkin <laughs> for co-writing Stacked with me. And uh, I'm boycotting yeah. this year. Yeah. <laughs> Why is that? You don't- <laughs> There's no best announcer person award. I'd, I'd love to see Doug picketing. Yes. <laughs> that would be great. You need to fly me to the Plutus Awards and I'll just stand outside with a picket sign. <laughs> what's the equivalent? What's the equivalent of the rent's too damn high when it comes to this lack of awards? The, <laughs> the Plutus Awards, uh, th- there's one too damn few awards. I don't know. Yeah. Too damn few awards. I don't know what the equivalent is, but. Anyway, thanks to our team. Thanks to all of you for listening, because obviously, if it weren't for you, we wouldn't be up for most entertaining or coverage of uh, personal finance events. Hey, but last but not least, of, of course, if you're concerned about all the market stuff in your news feed, and as uh, OG talked about earlier, on your social media feed and all the chatter around a recession, well, OG and his team have put together a free guide that shares eight moves to make in a down market. This guide will help you plan more and panic less no matter what the market does. So head on over to stackybenjamins.com slash guide. That's stackybenjamins.com slash guide, and you'll get his helpful free guide from OG. So thanks for that, OG. All right, that's going to do for today. Doug, man, you got it from here. Lots to unpack. Man, that was a heck of a show. What should we have learned today? Well, Joe, first, actively managed funds, while there is some utility and today's funds are the same ones your dad used, passive investing is still the hull of your investing portfolio ship. Second, speaking of ships, take a lesson from the people chasing the Titanic. While they may have failed at their goal, there are lots of lessons for all of us in chasing our dreams while still building a foundation and keeping our feet securely on the ground. The big lesson? After doing a little bit of math, Turns out digging gold from the Earth's core might, you know, maybe take more than a day or two. So we'll have to reschedule. Anyone want to, like, dedicate their weekend to me and we'll go out there with a couple of pickaxe? Anyway. 
Thanks to Daniel Stone for joining us. You'll find Sinkable, Obsession, The Deep Sea, and The Shipwreck of the Titanic wherever books are sold. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2022, and is created by Joe Salcihai. The show is written by the brilliant Paulette Perhatch with help from Joe, me, and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. Brooke Miller is our producer today and our amazing newsletter editor of the 201. You'll find the 411 on all things money at the 201. Just go to stackingbenjamins.com slash 201. Once we bottle up all this goodness, we ship it to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart. Steve helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to chat with friends about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is our social media coordinator and the room mother in our Facebook group called The Basement. So, say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. Both she and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. To join all the basement fun with other stackers, type stackingbenjamins.com slash basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and we'll see you next time back here at The Stacking Benjamin Show. Not only should you not take advice from these dorks, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any financial decisions, speak with a real financial advisor. Welcome to the after show. Today's going to be a part two after show, gentlemen, because I got a part two on two different uh, topics. Number one, Doug, I just finished last night around midnight, The Bear. I finished the season of The Bear. I didn't know you'd even started. That's cool. And? I absolutely loved it. I will tell you, well, and I didn't even, yeah, I didn't like it. I, I it was It was phenomenal. It was fantastic. This story, and people can go back and listen to when we talked about the first time we played the clip. We're not going to do that today, but this story of a chef whose brother died, taking over his brother's restaurant and the crap going on in his head, the crap going on with all of his team and watching this team try to come together. It is a show that, that now that I've watched the whole season, the show is very frenetic. Number one, to the point that I think that's why my spouse stopped watching it. Uh, Mm. uh, I don't think, but even though it's a half hour long, that show is on steroids. That show is yeah. so intense. And I think she, she's like, yeah, I can't do it. And my, my, my good friend, Mike, uh, who both you guys know, told me last week, he stopped watching it after three episodes. He's like, I liked it, but man, he's, he's like, mm-hmm. it's almost like you, Doug, when we talked about a board game that you played with me one time, a long time ago called Puerto Rico. Yeah. 
And you said, I don't yeah. want to play this game because I have a full-time job. Yeah. <laughs> Already. I, I actually have that game because I liked it and it's still in the cellophane wrapper. <laughs> I bought it probably 15 years ago and I look at it in the closet and I'm like, we should. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's yeah. what Mike said about the bear. He's like, it is a great, like he can understand how great it is, but he's like, I watch TV for fun, not to get done and go, huh? Xanax <laughs> <Like, laughs> now. Yes. Right. But very satisfying ending. You could tell that they did know that they, whether they'd be up for a second season or not, uh, because it really ties everything together and it's a great place to end the season. And Sydney, for those of you that watched it by far, my favorite character by far, Sydney is amazing. Just, just what, what a, I could write a paper about this, this woman and the ups and downs of her life. Just fantastic. It's, you know, what's funny is that if I was going to pick one actor in the show who didn't seem super realistic, it's her. I, she oh was my good. Goodness. She was good. She, no, was, she was very good on any other show. It would good, but everybody else like that show to me feels like it was almost a reality show. Like they just put GoPros on people's chests and filmed a kitchen. That's how real it felt to me. And her moments of dialogue were the only ones that felt uh, obviously scripted. I have otherwise compared to everybody, you know, in any other show, she'd be amazing. But in that show, it was the only one that took me out of that realism. Still very good though. It was funny for me. She was always the number one, the bright spot and number two, the voice of reality. Like as this, oh, yeah. as the oh, whole yeah. place is spinning away, she's like the really, not really the narrator, but the narrator that that's holding things together. And, uh, yeah. when things spin so far out of control at the end, near the end, I was like, it's about time when she made her big move. I was like, it, I can't believe she was still doing what she was doing. And it took her that long to finally give, you know, people the middle. I don't want to give it away, but she, uh, she kind of gave people the middle finger. But the other thing I liked about what they did with her character is it's very realistic. And if you look at typical team dynamics in any workplace, there's always that one person, that one coworker who just, they're like, I see the whole picture and this is all the change we need to make. And we need to do it now. She was trying that, right? She was, she just had all the ideas and she wanted to make all these big changes right away. And typically groups and teams don't respond well to all the change all at once. And I, I think the bear sort of knew that. I mean, Uh, I don't think he, what's that? Carmi? Carmi. Yeah. The chef. Well, no, he told her there's the scene where he even tells her, he's like, I read your, I went and I talked to all your previous employers and she's like, why'd you do that? He's like, because I respect you and I wanted to know more about you. And what I heard is that you're a phenomenal employee who always wants to do things better and is too impatient. Everybody said you're too impatient and she is, she was impatient. So I love they even call that out during the series, Mm -hmm. but in the one area where she should have been more impatient, she wasn't until finally she'd had enough. Right. But we'll let people see that. I I need to get to the second piece here though. Yeah. What's the second one? Well, which is that on last Wednesday's show, we had a discussion that uh, obviously a lot of people talking about this discussion about uh, paying to be on podcast. And oh. I said, that is not our thing. And uh, Doug was on the side of, I think there's a way for us to do it. I kind of clarify what I said <laughs> because of the fact that the second we finished that, I'm like, well, we have had the Dell episodes, right? Where we're talking mm-hmm. about the nature of work and Dell buys the entire show. And we have had sponsors on our show 
that are not paying to be on the show, but they certainly pay us money and we use them as a resource. We have people from Haven Life on, we've had people from Magnify Money on, we've had people from uh, Ryan from Cube when they were a sponsor. We've had our sponsors on the show before. But in those cases, I always feel like that's because we chose those people for a reason. We chose those sponsors because they're good at what they do. And I want to use their knowledge to help our stacker community get ahead. So when it comes to like cube money, talking about budgets, there's nobody better than Ryan Clark when it comes to budgets or when it comes to credit, talking to Nick Clements from Magnify Money and diving into that. I really want to want to clarify where that is in my head. Uh, I don't want people paying for paying for the exposure. Certainly, yeah. If Dell is buying an episode from us, Dell may require us in the future to have one of their people on. It might happen. It might happen. It's up to us as creators then to do what we've done with our experts in the past from our sponsors, which is if it's going to add to the narrative and add to the conversation, then okay, if Dell's buying the episode and a Dell expert can make that a better conversation, let's have them on. If not, then I need to do what I said last Wednesday and protect our listener because I still think that's the only person we owe anything to. If I'm making a crappy show that is just painting the Dell fence, you know, I think we're I think we're ruining it for everybody. So I hear you're willing to do it as long as it's additive and informative as as usual, as a typical episode is, and as long as it's not just cramming product or services down people's throats. But I think it's also got to be very clear. Like, I feel like in the past, we made it incredibly clear. This is our sponsor who's coming on in this segment. They didn't pay for this spot, number one. And then number two is we ask them to be a sponsor because of their resource. And here's why we think they can add to it. If it's the Dell episode, I mean, people that listen to the Dell episodes this year, from the very beginning, we're like, this is an episode about the world of work and technology sponsored by Dell. And this is good. We are going to talk about doing your job better and using technology to do it. And in all fairness, if somebody goes out and buys a Dell computer because of our podcast and it doesn't work correctly, is that on us or is that on Dell? Probably Dell, right? Like it's a commodity product. Some of the stuff that we were talking about, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Some of the stuff that we were talking about in this pay for play type of deal are a little bit more on the fringe. I'm not saying this was in the uh, the thing, but this was the sense that I got, the article. This is the sense that I got. Things like, I've got a pill that helps you with weight loss. You know what I mean? Like, okay, maybe you do, or maybe you're a snake oil salesman, but you throw that on, not that it would go on there, but you throw that on like a Tim Ferriss show, that dude's selling a crap load of pills. And if Tim Ferriss doesn't say, Hey man, I don't know anything about this. This dude paid me a hundred grand to be here. You know, then I think you have some obligation. If you're Tim Ferriss, I'm using him as an example to say, yeah, this dude just stroked me a big check so that he could sell a whole bunch of this crap. I'm not sure. Whereas if Dell does it, it's like, it's Dell, it's compute. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a commodity product. It's not like some weird. No, but thing. I feel like that's where the onus is on us is if there is a product yeah, that has 100%. a history of being crappy and we let them, we give them exposure on our show when they have a history of doing bad stuff, then I think the onus is on us. So well, if even Dell, if they don't if, have a history of doing it. 
No, no, no. I'm saying that, that, that Dell has had computers screw up before. And if you buy a Dell computer and it screws up, you're right. It's not on us. But if ahead of time, while we're picking our sponsor and Dell is this crappy name that everybody knows is a crap product. And we're like, yeah, hell, we'll take your money and talk about how great you are when we know it isn't great. Then I think the onus is on us. And on that note too, where this is happening is not in these type of episodes where this is happening. And this is what this piece was all about. This is like Daniel Stone, our guest today, paying us a grand to talk about the Titanic, right? About, about coming on and there's no disclosure and he's, I'm not going to have somebody talking about these topics that we have on all the time. I'm not going to ask Daniel Stone to pay me a thousand bucks to talk about this thing that's additive to our show. It's I mean, to kind of wrap this up, I think we do a good job of it as some people have heard this story before, but as we were uh, working with the fine folks at Westwood One, you might remember this, Joe, we had a contract and you and I have a Google Doc that we're working through and they have these paragraphs. We're like, yeah, we don't want to do that. We don't want to do that. And we're on the kind of a final wrap-up call. You, I'm, I'm sure you remember this happening. We're on a kind of a final wrap-up call. We've got their counsel on there. We've got us and and I think you said, well, why don't we just share the Google Doc that we had, and then we can all just kind of read it at the same time. And you and I had made uh, some parenthetical notes, you know, off in the sidebar. And, the, you know, the the attorney for Westwood One, you know where this is going. The attorney for Westwood I, I One's like, I didn't know where this is going. Now I do. Yeah. Yeah. The attorney for Westwood One's very, very regal, very buttoned up, like, okay, on subchapter C says here, content creator. Uh, owns all. Okay. Yep. Yep. We're good with that. Um, okay. Next page here. Advertisers. Um, no boner pills or weed. <laughs> yeah. I think we can agree to that. Is everybody okay with no boner pills? <laughs> Show of hands. See what I did there? But what was better was that it was a female uh, attorney. Yes. And she just went right through it. She, there was no, she, there was no fluctuation in her voice. Cause I was like, Oh, she's going to turn to the next page. Oh, oh here we go. <laughs> Guess whose note said no boner pills or weed. Yeah. Wasn't mine. <laughs> was not mine. You were so happy. So proud of yourself. So anyways, guys, that's, that's the line in the sand we draw. We have, we have uh, talked about, and actually in our contract, what I thought you were going to say very seriously, it says in our contract that we do have the right of refusal on yeah, any, we do, and, there's, and there's other networks uh, where they don't, where they've, you know, uh, friends of ours that have had to have ads, which doesn't mean it hasn't messed up before. There is something called remnant advertising where from time to time you have extra space and you're not sure exactly who it is, but inside these areas, you feel fine. And Westwood one actually ran one of those and a Robin hood ad appeared on our show, Yeah, which was not, not at all something we were happy about at all. Just a little peek behind the curtain there. We were slightly upset about that. And I bet Robin hood was upset about that too. It'd be like bank of America being our title sponsor. It'd be like hiring an arsonist to put out your building fire. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is military appreciation month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. 
this Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.